You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, what's interesting to me is you come uh, basically as a working journalist to this, and then you start writing fiction. Is that more or less correct? And you came as somebody who always wanted to write. You you came from fiction itself, but I think you've done some nonfiction also, and you mm-hmm. talk about doing it. I mean, what's what's the um, I mean, how did that work for you? How did you how did you um, get into writing fiction? Did you do the the MFA workshops? Did you do the writers groups or or what? I actually I come from a family of writers. My father is a constitutional historian, and he has published numerous dense, difficult. Um, I'm very proud of my dad, but I've never made it through one of his books, which I, I feel very guilty about. I, I, my dad and I are very close, and he's been my actually my best supporter. I, when I wrote this series, he was horrified, um, but he read it. We didn't really talk about it much. Um, he prefers some of my other work. And actually, this is something that very few people know. Susan may not even know this. My very first published work was not, it, it took me nine novels before I sold, so Bad Day for Sorry was actually my ninth novel, and I had eight unpublished before that. Um, but the very first thing that was published, okay, now I'm talking circles around myself. The first thing I ever published was A True Confession. But the first book-length thing I ever published was a biography of Oliver Wendell Holmes. And wow. very few people know that because I don't really talk about it. I co-authored it with my dad. And um, it was just one of the most exhilarating experiences ever. You can still buy it somewhere. Probably Was it a YA or for adults? It or? was a text for a, a middle, middle grade yeah. text. So okay. it, was a, it was a biography of the Supreme Court Justice. Um, so yes, that is a, a long way of saying that I do write a huge variety. My first, my, the Bad Day series is actually humorous. Um, I'm not a funny person at all. I really don't know. How, it was like my midlife crisis book. Because I, I mean, I, try writing eight novels and receiving 300 rejections. It's, it's, it's a bit demoralizing, a little bit. And then turn, try turning 45 and discovering that, like, you got a little hair grown out of your chin. It's a bad freaking day. And so I wrote, this was a temper tantrum of a book that I wrote. And it's about a woman who, who I, I'm not a domestic violence victim. Um, but um, it's about a woman who is, and she just takes revenge. But she's not just pissed off at her husband. She's pissed off at the fact that she volunteered in her community forever, and then you turn 45, and the community's like, okay, back of the line. So it's a really, a, it's about middle age um, as much as it is about anything else. And that's the only funny thing I've ever written or probably ever will. And then after that, I, I started writing for kids. I do have a young adult series, and they tend to be more, um, I guess, more techno thrillery. And then I wrote a police procedural because I love to read them. I'm a big fan of Elizabeth George. Um, I know some of you probably read her as well. Um, and uh, I just I wanted to write a police procedural, honestly, because I wanted to see if I could do it, um, which may not be the best reason for doing things in life, but it seems to be the only one I ever need. Um, so that one actually wasn't published until last year. It just came out with Simon & Schuster. And then... Um, yeah, what's the title of that? Um, the first one's called Blood Bond. And it's an e-original. It's an e-book, um, and it features a Pakistani American um, 
detective, which was something I became, I'm just, do you mind, I'm all over the place, sorry, but um, I, I lived in Danville, I used to live in Danville, and my, my son for two years went to a new high school in a community in San Ramon, which was 60% Asian and South Asian, Asian pr predominantly South Asian. And um, I thought this was wonderful because I grew up in Missouri. We had like we had one token Iranian in town. That was it. We were not allotted any other minorities or differently abled or anything. I um, was just a bunch of white farmers. And so I thought it was fantastic that my son would grow up exposed to more diversity. The very first time that I drove the soccer park carpool was one of the funniest moments of my life. I had a carpool of, of my son, two um, Pakistani boys and one Indian boy, all second generation. And they all started making fun of their fathers drinking tea at two in the morning and watching cricket. Now these boys were totally Americanized. So they're making fun of their dads with these, I, I can't, I won't even attempt to do the accent. It was the funniest thing ever. I was peeing my pants laughing trying to drive the minivan. And then they segued into which Latina actress they wanted to get in the pants of. So it was this moment for a girl from Missouri, you know, who I grew up in Missouri as you, I mean, I was a rural girl and all of a sudden this is my life. I'm driving along like, this is so fucking funny, but I have no one to tell. Like no one from my old life would, I'd be like, oh my God, you guys, this is hilarious. And, they'd, and I'd lose them immediately because there was, there's so many s social subcontexts and strata in that story that you probably all get because you're here that, that don't play in Missouri. So that was so exciting to me that I had to write a book. So, like, nobody dare me ever to do anything because a book will result. So I think I'll just stop talking now. Well, let me ask another question because the, what happened to the eight novels that you wrote before? Are they still sitting there or do you, you don't try to market them now or no, go back I, and fix them up or any of that stuff? No, and, and I'm going to take a stand here that's not a very popular one, but I will say that most people require an editor to produce either readable fiction or fiction that we should be proud to read. And I, I don't believe, I will never, I should never say never. I cannot imagine putting that fiction out there because I don't think it's good enough. And you know, the, and, the, and my rejections kind of, looking back over them, the thing about being an author is you don't know in the moment what you're doing wrong. 10 years later, right, Matt? You look back and you're like, holy shit, did I write, you know, like I made every mistake there was. I started the book with backstory pages and pages and pages. You knew everything about the character before anything ever happened. Um, so I had to make all those mistakes and it just, it took me five books to do it. A lot of people don't need five books to do it, um, or nine or whatever it was. A lot of people, um, but I'm a slow learner, so it took me a while. So what got you into writing fiction? You're pretty successful. You got a full-time job with the Times. Well, I, I, I think you said something to me, something really material. Um, I, I, want, I, see, I, I haven't gotten past the word ta tantrum. Um, and I, she said earlier she had a tantrum. I think, I'm not surprised that that was the year first that sold because I think very broadly, it's over broad, but I think great art comes from great emotion and it comes from a singular place. And, and the, my journey was, I'm, I'm a very structure-organized writer, thanks to having done 20 years of journalism. If you want to write fiction, I can't recommend anything more highly than being a journalist. One, because it teaches you some organization, and two, because it, um, it teaches you to get over writer's block, which is the enemy. If you don't write, you don't eat. 
So the, the reason I'm, I'm kind of prefacing my thought, I'll tell you my journey, but I just want to say, as you were talking, I thought to myself, if I had to create an equation for writing, it would be structure plus temp, tem, uh, temper tantrum. That would be <laughs> it in a nutshell. Because you take, you channel that energy into something that has some organizational um, structure. And absent the emotion, you're faking it. And absent the structure, it's just a temper tantrum. But for me, um, long-winded way of starting out, I wrote journalism and I loved it and I still do it. And um, I thought writing a book, I never had an ambition to do it. It seemed like something that it was long and extraordinary and I there was nothing driving me to do it. And one day I sat down in an emotional part of my life and wrote the beginning of Hooked. And five months later, without showing anyone, I looked up and it was, it was all but done. I mean, so I think, I think uh, the, and now all of these things, as much as they are thrillers or noir thrillers, or I don't know, genres we all cross, they all have a deep emotional core to them. And I feel like if I'm not having a, it, it may not be a temper tantrum, but if I'm not really deeply emotionally invested and want to go on an emotional journey, then I better burn my pencil. So. Pencil. I do not own a pencil. <laughs> nor, wait, nor a match. So that's a complete fake. Well, what was the temper tantrum? Well, I'd, may I tell you the may I tell you the beginning of that book? Yeah, it'll explain it all. Yeah, I haven't uh, the it'll, first book. I haven't. It will. It will. Okay. You will. I, I think I can show not tell on this, and then I'll back up to tell. This is what I wrote in about two thousand four or five, sitting in a cafe. I wrote that there was a thirty-something sitting in a cafe, and he sees the hand a a, a beautiful hand of a woman put a note on his table. And by the time he looks out at her, he she's gone. And this all happens in a page and a half like this prologue. And he picks up the note, which is folded, and he goes to the door of the cafe to find the woman and sees that she's gone. And he opens the note, and it says, get out of the cafe now, and the cafe explodes. And he's sitting in the rubble outside having survived. Um, and he's thinking about his ex-girlfriend who died four years earlier. And he has been obsessed with her memory since she died. But that's not why he's thinking of her at that moment. It's because he recognizes her handwriting on the note. And I became obsessed with trying to figure out whether she was alive or dead. And I had gotten out of a very long-term relationship. And as I say, five months later, a fiction writer was born in a, you know, something of fire. Well, I'd say a fiction writer was born in that setup, but... <laughs> That's um, that's pretty remarkable, actually, and um, so that took. And the character was the character you stayed with. It is now the one next year is not a one in the that's. I've got a few coming is is not, but I, I'm playing with with one that is. Um, like Sophie, I've got a lot of now that now that the muse has taken hold, she is aggressive and uh, unresponsive to treatment. <laughs> She's an ornery bitch. She is ornery. <laughs> well, what about, had you, uh, so you hadn't really thought about um, fiction writing, but clearly you, see to me, I would say, um, like what Sophie said about, an, uh, I think you do need a great editor, but I think um, most writers tend to have read a lot. 
so they, there's a great there's an editor kind of in the back of their head, you know. And was that your had you read a lot of fiction, or was that the kind of fiction you read? I mean, that's that's a setup for a, a thriller. I mean, if you look at genres, how they work. I think that's that's fair enough. I would say that um, again on the very uh, the very kind of personal level, which I think drives it. I grew up in a pretty um, analytical home, and I don't think I really thought that there was anything. I, I even hesitate to call myself an artist, but I didn't even think that that was an option. And yet, at the same time, I was so captivated by stories that swept me up and the journeys that they took me on. And I, you know, I would get my politics from fiction because those the emotions spoke to me. And I think somewhere in my twenties, you know, I. I had a pretty good personal confrontation and let go of the whatever it was I thought I should be or how I should behave or whatever and gave in to the emotion that was inside of me and the and the 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 thrill of experiencing it. And so the combination of having that analytical structured training of journalism and the and giving into emotion, I think all kind of got channeled towards that. But yes, in short Long answer to short to a short to give and I'll sum it up in a short way. I read a lot of it and I don't think I fully appreciated the extent to which I it took me over and I wanted to make other people feel the way I was able to feel and I wanted to feel it as a writer myself. What <laughs> don't look at me like I'm strange. No, I'm not at all. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking about how um, I was kind of, I, I got stuck on something you said, and I was still thinking about how, you know, you were kind of working out a relationship in your fiction. And I find that to be so true that I, not, a, not in the moment, but a few years afterwards, I'll go back to a book and I'll go, oh, yeah, I was working out, you name it, you know, yeah. um, whatever the issue of the moment was in the book. So isn't that interesting how, like, um, you know how, like, your literature teacher says, uh, what do you think, what does this say about Mark Twain? You go, oh, you are so full of shit. <laughs> You're just trying to justify your thesis, yeah. but maybe there is uh... Do you ever have that experience where someone will come up to you and they'll be like, oh, I love what you did there. You were referencing, you know, that was like an homage to Proust or whatever. I mean, I, that's actually not happened to me. I was elevating myself for you all, but, but do you have that experience? I've never even like, heard of Proust. Oh, sorry. No. Well, uh, um, but you know, like where people read in, um, Whatever not, it might be. Not so much that, but I thought uh, where I thought you were going, which does happen, and I'll kick the same question back to you, but I get people saying, I can't believe how much of your voice I hear in this when it feels to me like so much invention. Do you get that? Well, I get, and so this, this will be great. I, I like this guy, and I want to ask him everything. <coughs> but um, people will often think I'm writing about them. Or the other thing is they'll say, are you any of your characters? And I always say I'm, I'm all my characters because in the moment that I'm writing them, I really have to be deeply inside their head. So yes, I'm, st I'm like I'm the angry housewife, but I'm also the 26-year-old, you know, fragile and damaged mother. And I mean, and so I mean, you have a series protagonist who. One of the things I like about your thriller, I, I read thrillers, but I like thrillers like Matt's that are character deep. I am not a, um, I'm not particularly drawn to uh, thrillers which don't spend a lot of time developing the characters, which are really much more about um, plot. And there is a place for those, and there is a reader for those, but that's just not what I'm interested in. So, I mean, you've got a very, with you do within a couple chapters, you've actually managed very nicely to give us a lot of insight into your character without beating us over the head with it. 
So he's a very rich character. Do people ask you if it's you all the time? They they do, and I I again I I'll say my answer and kick it back to you. But my my experience has been uh, no no one that I write about is autobiographical. There are pieces and bits and things. But the one thing that's true is I don't think I write an emotion for any of my characters that I can't connect to in some way. I mean the the falseness of that is just is is blaring and glaring to me. So yeah. the while it may not be autobiographical and stuff this character goes through in this book, I've never experienced anything close to it. Um, but nevertheless, um, and in the one in the book that comes out next year called The Peace Machine, there's a character who's a serious dick is the protagonist. And um, like I don't I don't think I go through life like that, but I can certainly. <laughs> we all have our moments. Right, but yeah. you can swear that that is otherwise that I am. In fact. <laughs> what What about you? How do you connect to the emotions of your characters? Well, I think you're right. I mean, we have to have some familiarity. I mean, there are characters I can't write because I don't know them. I just, you know, I don't like like I can't write a debutante. You know, I, I grew up kind of scrappy, so that's that's not a character. Okay, as so my next book will be called The Debutante. I'm, I'm just a little perverse that way. But I think we have to know, like my, one of my favorite characters is actually in the Bad Day series, and he's a 13-year-old boy. And my son at the time was probably 13. And the reason I'm proud of this character is that often adult fiction writers apparently forget what it's like to be 13, and their 13-year-olds their help at the dinner table and do their homework. No, my character wants to get high behind the Arco. So I think, you know, I was able to write that because I was driving those boys around in my car all the time. So I brought, I wouldn't have attempted that character unless I had some familiarity with him. And honestly, in a way, I, I knew that my kids wouldn't be teens forever, thank God. But I wanted to write that while I could because isn't it true that we, Matt has smaller children, but you forget, like you, you forget, I forget what it's they're like. They're actually adults, but they're tiny. Yeah, they're very small, very small. <laughs> <laughs> but they like, you're, like you have That's to That's all, they're very small. They're very small, they're, they're in their very 40s. They're very cute, <laughs> and they're really freakily well-behaved. I'm not getting that at all. Maybe maybe the issue is me, I'm not sure. But um, I no, think- You were we, also very well-behaved. No, I was yeah, no, I met my kids. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I learned a few table manners along the way. Once I got out of Missouri, it was you know, a lot easier, but um, no, but we have to, you have to have some currency, and I feel like, you know, I can tell when an author is writing a character. Typically, um, when we try to write other, uh, the other gender, you know, I think that's a place where... There's another gender? There is. Crazy, <laughs> though it might be. Crazy. And I've written from a male point of view, and I actually really enjoy the exercise, but um, it's tough, right? And you write... See, I really like his work, and he actually reminds me of my my brother. Also, writes great female characters. They're they're identifiable to me. I'm not questioning that he's never met a woman, which sometimes I'm telling you with these guys. Like, have you ever read the thriller where the this is what I love. I'm about to go on a tangent, so just tune out. But uh, I'll be teaching a writing seminar, and a guy will stand up and he'll be like, "Well." I was the CEO of a widget factory for, you know, 50 years. I've just retired. I'm going to write a book that's going to take the world by storm. It's about a 50-year-old CEO and a really hot 28-year-old FBI agent with long blonde hair. Okay, right there, that guy obviously, like, I wouldn't date him because he doesn't know women, right? Well, okay, some of that may be my issues. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, you got to know what you're writing about or it's going to show, right? Well, I'm curious when you write when you write men do you try to what do you what do you do to channel that well okay so so joe is a good example my joe bashir is my pakistani american um 
I don't really know. Okay, now I'm going to just contradict everything I just said. I kind of just like became Joe. I'm a, you know the method acting where apparently like the guy that played Lincoln, what's that guy's name? You know? Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay, so Daniel Day-Lewis apparently stayed so entrenched in his character that like you take the guy out for coffee and he's like being Lincoln, right? In the, he's pumping gas and being Lincoln. He's, you know, he's Lincoln. Well, I'm kind of like that when I'm writing. So I don't, I don't really have a good answer for you, but when I'm writing Joe, I'm a 35-year-old Pakistani-American man who is driven by the fact that his father was a victim of a hate crime. And I, I don't really know how to describe it other than I have to become that character is to the best I can. And obviously I'm limited in a lot of ways, but the best I can during that exercise, I have to be that person as, as well as I can imagine him. Yeah. Well, I haven't read your, um, your books, but I've I did a little research, and I looked, at, and that's what everybody, uh, just like Sophie, they talk about this character of yours who's, they're crazy about because mm -hmm. he's flawed. That's what they like about this guy. I mean, is that, who is this you guy? You know, I, I'll tell you, I've run in, I ran into, his name's Nat Idle. He, uh, he Idle, this, what does that mean? It means he's lazy. <laughs> uh, He's not complete. He doesn't think things through. Or you know, I don't. I don't know if it's. It was never that pat. I mean, I've. I've. Uh, I think in retrospect, I've had a, a lot of names of characters that are that have some pregnancy to them, but it never felt quite that intentional. Um, I, I think in his case, if I had to tie it to a characteristic, it would be that um, uh, in the in the the second book is called Devil's Plaything. It's not satanic. It's it's drawn roughly the phrase, you know, an idle mind is the devil's plaything. He's a character who, um, when when there is an idle moment, it fills with something um, destructive. I don't mean like lighting fires, but you know, he will he might take on a task or um, follow a lead or do something that may not ultimately be in his best interest. An idle moment does not serve him well, and sometimes is destructive for him. But the in the in the spirit of him being flawed, I'll, I'll say. I'd say this, it was, it's actually, it, it will be an issue until it's not with my publisher, by which I mean, um, they, HarperCollins, and I, I cannot say enough good things about them, to the ex they are so good to me to the extent that this month, every hour um, in Times Square, they will flash an ad for this book. They are well more than supportive. Um, but we've had a conversation on several occasions about whether in the thriller genre you can have a character who, um, you know, tends to use humor and even apology rather than blunt force. And it's a, you know, it's a, I, I know there are a lot of writers in this audience, and I know some of them personally who are unbelievable writers, and these are hard questions. I mean, to what extent do you fit your protagonist into expectations, depending on how commercially viable you want to be? Why, the reason I say Nat Idle is a problem until he's not is, in my view, he's you know, if his commercial success fulfills what he is, then all of a sudden he's just perfect enough. Right. Um, we'll see. Other things about him is uh, he went to medical school, and this says a lot about him, and he became, um, and he, and it, after his fourth year of medical school, which he completed, he essentially stopped any pursuit of medicine. And the reason was for him, the world of medicine was quite black and white. And for him, although I know it is not like this for everyone in medicine, he would look at treating a patient a little bit like working at Jiffy Lube 
in a much more pseudo-intellectual way and that you diagnose a problem and you come up with an answer. And for him, living in the, bl the blacks, the, the rainbow colors of existence, not the black and white ones, the ones that, that writing permits and journalism permits are, are much more comfortable to him. Um, so um, that's a bit about him. Uh-huh. So he doesn't like a... <laughs> no, that makes sense. So, you so. looked at me like I owe you $150 for the hour. <laughs> no, no. no, I'm just thinking... And how does that make you feel, Matt? <laughs> no, I'm just thinking there's, you know, as some, you know uh, we've all had experience with publishing, and, uh, and we, we tend here to piss and moan about it a lot, but actually you put yourselves in their places. They have to publish a book, put it out, make money on it. And to me, there's always, you know, like a, 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 there's a template for a thriller. But at the same time, there's a template for a publisher, which is they have to have, you have to respect the template that the reader's looking for, but you also have to break it to create some, there has to be something original about it at the same time. So it's a balancing act that the publisher is doing at the same time, or they're looking for you to do. I, I don't begrudge it at all, honestly. Yeah. I mean, this is a business partnership. And mm -hmm. the, fir the first thing is, I think it was <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut who said you got to have a genre. So, you know, I mean, you got to well, He never wanted, uh, anyway, it seemed like he never wanted one, but. Well, I mean, he, toward the end of his life, he said something to that effect. I mean, you can't shy away from these tropes and these precepts that yeah. are, you know, I don't think anyone among us does. We're, we're steeped in them, even as readers. Right. But, you know, they, uh, I think eventually you make your peace that if you're going to really elicit deep pleasure out of this exercise, you're going to write the stuff that means something to you. Right. And then you, the other thing, the reason why I think that is not the same thing as saying the market be damned is I think publishers, there are smart people at publishers, there are dumb people at publishers, but there are smart people at publishers, and they recognize um, talent and sophistication and hard work. They may not back it to the point where you're going to be making a lot of dough. This is, you know, for God's sakes, go to law school. But if that's your, if that's the idea. But, you know, if you if you have those elements, if you have some at least sense of genre, but also you have talent and skill and hard work, to a greater or lesser extent, I think it's going to be realized. All that said, today we're in an all bets are off kind of universe, and that's not a publishing problem. They're right there at the back of the bus with us. Yeah. You know, um, no historical reference intended there, just, you know, in the sense that we're all struggling today. No, I agree. And they don't, they don't know what's going to, and a lot of it's just luck. They don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. But they, but they are working within, um, you know, there's a reason you call something a thriller. There's a reason you call it science fiction. There's a reason you call it a romance. And that's kind of, and I think as writers, we don't always, we're not, there's very, I know some writers that are business people, you know, but most writers really aren't. And they're trying to, they do what they do, and then somebody says, well, it'll fit into this, or it'll fit into that, and, you know, so it's it's always kind of partial. And also, people are always looking for something that fits in, and yet doesn't quite fit in, because there needs to be, from their point of view, there needs to be something in it. I mean, you, you write um, 
in the romance genre, right? No, I actually that. don't. I was I, I believe strongly in the uh, Romance Writers of America for aspiring writers is the finest organization I've belonged to, and I've belonged to all of them. But I don't write romance. Um, but I will um, kind of pick up the thread that that you started there by saying that I too um, am very supportive of my publishers. I am not one of these that cast stones at the person that writes my paychecks, um, and I. Also, we need our publishers to be shrewd businessmen and businesswomen, or we don't get paid. And one of my, I work for four different publishers. One of them is Harlequin. Harlequin um, is profitable every year, every quarter, every minute of the day. It might be because they're run by women, I'm just saying. Um, but also, they're known for really being tough in negotiations. Well, okay, yeah, there, there, some of their terms are uncomfortable for me, and my agent, God lover, is in there every day trying to bust through that, and she's been successful. She's gotten me some terms, like she has won occasionally with Harlequin, but I will always get a paycheck from them because they're in business. Now, it doesn't mean that they're unfriendly to innovation, so Garden of Stones, the book that's coming out in March, um, initially was really, it's very unorthodox because it, it's a thriller, and yet it has this internment angle, so it's combining history, thriller, women's fiction, all in, all in one. And it was almost shot down in editorial as being too, say, genre-bending or like not fitting into a niche. Well, it's uh, been picked up as the book club pick for March, I think, because it is different. I think it because it takes some chances. So it's true, they're looking for innovation, but within, it's, very, it's a very fine line, like you were saying, um, we need to meet our readers' expectations. And Matt alluded to this. He's, I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, and you can tell me if I do this wrong, but he's got, an, he's got a slightly beta character, beta hero out there. And we generally, women buy 60% of the fiction or more, and they're looking for an alpha hero. They want a badass hero. Susan's shaking her head at me, but that's because you're special. You're not an average reader, and you know it, sister. But um, uh, the, the preponderance of the readership wants, but see, I think you've actually fulfilled that. He's actually gone above and beyond and give us something even better, which is a guy that kicks ass and takes care of the baby. You know, that's what we, you know. So I, I digressed there a little bit. But so we have to, there's a, a concept that I like to use called contract with the reader. When I write a book, I have to satisfy your expectations. In other words, I can't give you an ending so bleak that you are without hope. I can't have the lovers, you know, fail to reach a resolution at the end. That's part of our contract as reader and, and author. But at the same time, you want something you haven't read a thousand times before. And if you can, you know, take the cloud. The cloud actually does that because it's not a Michael Crichton, because you've seen that before, but it's also meeting your expectations. You'll be satisfied at the end. So. Well, it sounds to me like in, in terms of that book, you weren't thinking about, I'm going to write a thriller. You were just thinking about a setup and how to, and then you had to work it out, right? You which, had to, which one? This one? I'm talking the about the note. The first one? Yeah, the guy gets a note. I had no, no. Um, that one I did not. Yeah, it wasn't like problem. me saying, oh, there's a great setup for a thriller. You're just thinking, what happens now? I mean, so it's not like you're, you're starting. My experience has been, um, I'm a writer myself, and you, you start with something like that, but it's like the further you go in a book, the more your um, choices are limited because you originally had this expansive idea it could be anything, but it's going to be something wonderful. And the more you write in the book, uh, the book itself begins to limit it begins to drive itself, so uh, you know you don't get in to a good way or a bad way. You're saying, well, both. You know, it can be either way, but it's you, you, 
you lose control of it, and pr when you finally lose control of it, you're you're done with it. <laughs> you know, it it won. I know everyone's different, I, Sophie. I don't know if you outline or not, but but I I simply I what simply I put a really concrete point on the horizon where I know I know on two levels. This is where the chief plot will resolve, and this is how the emotion will resolve. And oh. having done that. I know where those things are headed. Having done that, I try to let the story unfold within those two constraints. So even on that book, you had at the beginning, you said yourself you're trying to figure out how. I, after, um, uh, I, I have a friend who's a, who's a really terrific writer um, and uh, movie writer. Had enormous success, and I wrote 30 pages of that book and I was on his porch in Los Angeles and he said wow I love that opening what are you going to do and I said I have no oh excuse me for a minute <laughs> and I had been gestating something that I hadn't realized and then I knew what the horizon was and in, in other cases in the subsequent two books I've had in this in the case of the cloud I started the beginning of this and I called my agent and I said um, uh, listen uh, I have to tell you the emotional arc of this so that you can tell me if I will not I will be violating the contract with my reader slash more importantly my publisher mm -hmm. because it's it's a pretty intense emotional journey and uh, she said to me Matt this is I, I, God love her for this she said this is the moment you're going to be the writer you want and deserve to be, or are you going to be the writer that someone aspires to be, that you, that you think you should aspire to be? And I went right after the jugular of what, and, and I'm, I'm really deeply, I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't love the word proud, but I'm, I'm deeply happy that I, that I indulged the emotional journey that I, that I set out on and that I, I sensed was the right place yeah but what's the, the difference between, you're going to be the writer you want to be i articulated it poorly she said are, are you going to be are you going to be the writer you think someone wants you to be oh. are you going to be are you going to be who you are right this is your moment make the call it was that fast that's Done. cool that's a great moment i like that it was yeah. a great it was a great moment and uh and i want and i know with her i won't look back and I who's your editor at harper Collins? that was your editor this was my. This is my agent. Oh. Her, her name's Lori Liss, and my editor is Tessa Woodward. Okay, I don't know. There's a story. Um, we're gonna take a break. Let me tell a story. There uh, about a, a San Francisco painter, a Berkeley painter named David Parks, who was part of a little group of painters out here in um, the Bay Area in the 50s, and they were sort of subsidiary to the, they were, they were great admirers of the abstract expressionists, you know, like, um, um, you know, Pollock and, and um, de Kooning and the, the very successful New York painters. And there's this one guy named, I always love this story, David Park, uh, and he was doing fine. He was selling paintings, he was a professional painter and everything. And one day he's about 50 years old and his wife comes home um, from work, he paints, he has a studio up in the basement, and she comes home, 
and he's got all, he's loading his canvases into a pickup truck. And he's downstairs and she helps, she says, what the hell's going on? And he says, I went upstairs and I was looking at my stuff. This guy's been working for 30 years already. And he said, and I looked at my paintings and I said, these are the paintings of somebody who wants to be important. And I hauled them down and I put them in the truck and she helped and he took them to the junkyard and he threw them all away and he became the painter he wanted to be. And I think that's the same kind of thing because he knew he wanted to be important. He wanted to be an important painter, but he had missed that. Let's have a, uh, let's take five minutes, get another beer, help a child escape from slavery, um, and, um, if and you come must. back. Yeah, and, uh, and come back in five minutes, and then I'll let you guys talk. You can ask some questions of these quite interesting and um, quite professional writers. Cool. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks all for sticking around. Just to uh, just to follow up on a couple of the things I said earlier, you're welcome to sign up for the newsletter. You can always check our website at sfnsf.org, and the charity's website is at varietync.org. I was just mentioning to our uh, our lovely bartender who is now on her way home. Um, we just had a fundraiser last night for Variety, so we do a lot of other different things other than show films and have authors, but. Uh, we were, Jacob, uh, my husband, who is Tachyon Publications and the sponsor of SFNSF, we and Variety board members, Variety supporters, we were all over at the Punchline Comedy Club last night with Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> I can never what? get it. We've started calling him Zach Galapagos because <laughs> So we had a Oh, nice you mean the imitation writer. Jack Black? Pardon? The imitation Jack Black? I'm sorry. I, I Jack should never. Black. Never mind. I, should, I, I, I take it back. One of us has had too much to drink. All right. Today. All right. <laughs> so, but anyways, we had a great fundraiser last night that put uh, quite a bit of money in Variety's coffers, and the big buzz going around was, "Is that who I think it is in the front row?" And it was Jill Montana. And it turns out one of our board members, she's like, "Oh yeah, I saw his name on the invite list." I got a football right here in my bag. <laughs> so you might see a, a Joe Montana signed football show up, not at our raffle, but at another variety event. So that's just a little bit of what we've been up to. Um, SF and SF, uh, we've got coming up next month, we've got a we've got three debut novelists <coughs> from a small press in the Midwest somewhere. I'm not sure where he's located, maybe Kansas. A uh, press called Hadley Real Books. And we will have uh, Julia Devoren, Heather McDougall, and Cliff Winnig here as debut novelists. And we will have, it's debut novelist drink night, so we will have a drink called the Moonbeam in their honor. April, we've got uh, editor Rick Claw, who's got a new book out from Tachyon called Apes of Wrath. All things simian and human <laughs> in a science fictional theme. It's getting great reviews. It's got a fabulous cover illustration of a very angry chimpanzee in a smoking jacket with a cigar. It's worth the price of admission. <laughs> and uh, author Mary Robinette Cole will be back with, I think the th it's the third book in her Shades of Milk and Honey trilogy. Then in May, we are looking at Austin Grossman and Robin Sloan. Uh, July, or I'm not sure if it will be June or July, but we are going to host an author named Deborah Ross, who is the successor to Marion Zimmer Bradley with the Darkover novels. And we've got a couple other authors on tap for that. Um, we're hoping to get John, John DeChancey and Diana Paxson. Mm -hmm. 
And then coming up in September, we will have Michael Marshall Smith, a UK writer who's just relocated here. Um, Nick Mamadis, another local author with the new book. Oh, out. Nick's coming. Yes, in September. Good. October will be our Lit Quake event, which we're very excited about. I realized I forgot August, where we will see uh, another local UK transplant, Chaz Brenchley, um, who also writes under Daniel Fox, I think is the other name, is his other pseudonym, uh, with Laura Ann Gilman. And then we wrap the whole uh, year up with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and Cecilia Holland in November. So here it is, January, we were already booked for the whole year. So you can see we got a lot coming. Uh, this is just a small taste, so we hope we'll see you all back here again and that you guys come back as well. So, and I will turn this again over to Terry Disson. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so um, who won the ticket? You got the ticket to the makers thing, right? Well, we do makers here too, because we have science fiction writers that are often making fools of themselves. And um, so we make here. That's what we do. Um, does anybody have a question before we begin our discussion? Sure. Pat. I'm Pat a is also a, a shill. Huh? I'm a little bit of a shill. You did ask me if I had a question. Yes. Um, you said you it's had. It's actually more of a topic for conversation. Um, and you touched on it, both of you. Um, when you were talking about working for different publishers, I've never thought of myself as working for a publisher when I'm writing novels. Is that what you meant, or do you work for them apart from that? And let me let me sort of finish the question because I'm intrigued by the relationship of ability to write whatever you want and keeping your day job. Um, you know, Matt, it's you've got a very good day job. <laughs> Um, and it's sort of the, the pressure to write a lot of different novels. I think you're having a great time writing a bunch of different things. I'm just intrigued by sort of, it's kind of more like a, not exactly a question, but more like a discussion yeah. topic. I actually, and I and I have strong feelings on that. I'm really glad you brought that up. And um, and I would say my experience is not the usual. So I'll preface it by saying, you know, this is certainly just me and not most people out there. So t my two responses to that are, first of all, I'm very, very lucky that I am able to write, I mean, honestly, between you and me, I'm the only author I know that's allowed to write in as many genres as I do, other than possibly um, uh, ch China, wait, ch China Mayville, yeah, so, possibly Walter Mosley, um, but but honestly, I, like I'll go up against anybody there, and there's a very specific reason for it, and it's my agent. My agent is is fearless, and she doesn't say no to me. I mean, she says no to me often. I mean, she keeps me in my place. But when I I told her when we signed together that it was really important to me to be able to work widely, and not necessarily deeply. And at the time, money wasn't as much of an issue as it is now because I now support myself. I was married, and, and I'm not. I'm not now. Um, so it's so I'm rethinking this. So I mean, a year from now, I may be sitting here going, "No, no, you got to write one thing and write it, write it really well." But it was really important to me from the get-go that I get to write a lot of different things, and I've been able to do that. I mean, I've written. I actually have written for five publishers, but I'm currently writing for four in very doing very different things. There this are. This girl's on a roll. I mean. I I love my job. Like you have like 
Yeah, and that's and and I will tell you that's not the way to build a career. Like it's not the most career focused thing to do. And, and my best friend is a New York Times best selling author, and her series are much more like my series are like this: bam, 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 bam. Hers are like this. Who's you know, I feel like this one. Yeah, Juliet Blackwell. She writes the witchcraft mysteries. There's a fan in the audience of her. So that's my best friend. I mean, she writes her things are like if you if you like this, you're gonna like this probably. That's not true for me. Like, if you like my zombies, you're probably not going to like Stella. If you like Stella, you're not going to like the white. You know, so that's thing one. It's not, it's not career folks, but it's important to me. The other thing is, oh, writing for publishers. And this is where I depart from a lot of my peers and colleagues. I firmly believe that my books are a team effort. You know, I, God willing, I win an award someday. I, I actually have won an award. And when I gave my acceptance speech, I said this book would not exist if it weren't for Barbara, my agent, my first reader, and my editor. And I really mean that. I'm not, I mean, yes, I'm kind of shilling to the audience, and the week you're supposed to say that, right? Sure. But I also mean it because the book that you, that gets into your hands is very, very different from my first draft. And it's got Barbara in it, and it's got Erica in it, and it's got Adam in it. And it's very different when it gets to you, and it's a better book. I'm not, I don't have a lot of ego when it comes to this stuff. I know. I know what I, I I know what I'm working on. I can tell you my weaknesses, and since we're all friends now, I will tell you I'm character deep and plot shallow, and I'm going to work on that until I get it right. But there's I have a lot of other things that I don't even know are my weaknesses, and that's where my editors come in. It turns out I'll just I'm oversharing tonight. It's probably because I'm drinking this bullet bourbon, but um, you know, going through a divorce, it turns out I wrote a really unsympathetic husband in my last book. Well, I didn't know. I'm like, well, all men are assholes, so what are you talking about? <laughs> Turns out, no offense to the gentleman here, there, no, whatever. It, it, it's, um, a, it's a medical fact. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> right. but, but I had to rewrite the book, and when I, used to, I just came out of this process, and I rewrote it, and I'm like, damn, she's right. Erica was right. And every, we, we, I assume, Matt, Matt, same case for you, we work um, with track changes now. It's not like a paper revision. And, or do you do paper revisions? I mean, it's a little bit of, anyway, so I'm going through the manuscript and Erica's like, you did it again. Hey, Littlefield, enough with the, you know, and I'm like, oh God, she's right, she's right, she's right. And if I hadn't had that editorial experience, I would have put in a book out there with a really unattractive hero that you couldn't root for, you know? So yeah, I really, I really believe that. So that's my view. True confession. True confession. Next year I may feel differently, but that's how I feel today. What about you? Do you work with track changes? Do they, do you get a, I've just learned how to do this stuff. <laughs> but um, I, not not for the first drafts, I don't. But let me. Can I just go to um, Pat? No, I, yeah, no, I yeah. Sorry, I was. Pat's uh, also I, a professional, right? She's we've a talked. Yes, yeah. no, okay. she's a genius, and I will shill oh, for you. <laughs> Pat, she's not a genius. She's pretty smart. <laughs> Listen, but anyway, from where I sit, a lot of people are geniuses. <laughs> okay. Um, can I try parsing your question and see if I? two questions here, and I, I might see it through a slightly different lens. One is the writing for new several publishers or the, the relationship to a publisher, and one is keeping your day job. Uh, the only difference I would say is rather than the writing for several publishers, I'm curious about the semantics. When you said it initially, you said you worked for several publishers. To me, that's a very different feeling than what you said, which is I have a business yeah. With the publisher. So I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm good, good eye or good ear there. That, uh, well, can, and can I, can I add, put a third leg on this stool? Sure. 
about the day job. I always like to know where I'm going to get corrected. Um, the uh, lots of people say, you know, it's the it's an adage for us: keep your day job. I actually think there's an interesting reason to keep your day job that has that is totally apart from the reasons that we've talked about. And I would I'd, I'd put this in a form of a question to you, Sophie, after. Um, I think when you have a day job, it actually alleviates pressure from your fiction in a way that's very emotionally um, positive. And I think, I think when you take on a long-term project that has where the finish lines are a little bit obscure and you set them yourself, to the extent that you can take pressure off that by focusing occasionally on something else, you're actually probably better off. I've, I, I know people say, how do you do two things at once? My answer is, I can't do fewer than two things. And it's not because I'm, you know, I got attention issues. I don't think I do, I'm actually pretty focused. I think it's because emotionally, I'm better off when I can sap some of the terror that conceivably could come from such an investment and redirect it at something else. And that's where I'd, I'd, I, that, that's a reason to keep a day job that has nothing to do with paying the mortgage, although that's a bonus. But I'd a, I was gonna ask you, Sophie, to what extent doing more than one thing at once actually allows you to like, you know, do the functional equivalent of listening to music while you're doing homework. It sort of takes some of the air out of the, out of the crazy. No, I think that's a really good point. And I think I've often said that it was, it's a blessing and a curse that I was a homemaker a homemaker has an expiration date. Your kids go to college, as mine are, and you're done. Um, well, not and, actually, but you're yeah. pretty much done. <laughs> well, and, they and come then, home from college. <laughs> right. But anyway. Right, no, I, I see your point, and I, I, that's true, too. No, but, and I, I used to live in an, a, an affluent community, and the, the, the women that were my peers were looking at 20 years of tennis. I mean, I, I don't, and, I, and that is met, said with affection, with deep an abiding affection from my friends. It's terrifying though. Your kids are done. You've invested everything you got into making a home and bam, you know, what, what are you looking at? So I think I was really lucky in a couple of ways. I don't have another skill. I mean, I was a computer major. I know how to program in COBOL. I mean, that and a nickel gets you nothing. So, um, so I don't have another skill. Honestly, looking at the last five years, if I w had the skills to be a paralegal, a manicurist, a waitress, all of those would have been more lucrative and I would have done it. But I got nothing. So I think I was lucky in a way because I didn't have, you know, it's been a tough go and it's not, I have not yet made the money that I hope to someday, <laughs> let's just put it that way. And I think that if I had been able to, I would have put it aside and done that. So yes, you said like, so my, um, I'm lucky. I have a rich um, group of friends. I have family. I read a lot. I have other interests. But you're right. You cannot do this all day long. You have to have something else that you turn to. I just started volunteering, and I think that's going to actually be really key for me. Uh, I, I volunteered a lot when I was a homemaker because you have to have something you can turn away from or you will go freaking crazy if all you got in your life is the relationship with the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely. Now, when you talk about a day, you're still uh, well, doing um, Grady. For many of us, this is a function that family serves, whether whether it's a function, uh, keeping us grounded, yeah. keeping yeah. us tied. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to, I mean, Matt said job, but it's, it take it a little bit bigger, whether it's your 
whether it's your family, your children, maybe you're a caregiver, but you have to have something else. And and there are, I actually am sort of a mentor for a young woman who, as far as I can tell, only writes, and I'm a little worried about her, a little concerned, um, because you, you, I don't think that's healthy. you got to have something else going on. Can Wait, I, wh what do you do for the towns? Features? A lot of different things. Um, it runs the gamut from newsy things to um, feature stories to long kind of like more. I, I, t I read the Times every morning. What, what feature stories? Would they be in the science section or the? I, I'm, I'm not being glib. I mean, they've the, at this stage in my career, they are literally everywhere. They can be on the front. They be on the front page. They can be in the sports section. They can be in the. F they, they are. I mean, I've, I just did a story where I trained as a barista. Um, to huh. see what that was like, and I've the last three years I've done very long investigative series about the role of computers in our lives and how they affect your brain. And um, you got the Pulitzer for one on multitasking, right? On, on that and that yeah. as well. So yeah, I was I was not being disingenuous. Yeah, they're yeah. at this stage after 20 years. It's the 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 world of journalism. This is a much longer, different conversation, but it's changed a lot. And storytelling has become much more valuable to a profession that once was very authoritarian and told you ah. what to think. And so now they look for good stories any place you can find them. And uh, that's, uh, I think, for the better. I don't know if it'll mean our survival or, I mean, sur surely we'll survive, but maybe not in a way that makes our shareholders totally happy. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's, it's put a premium on storytelling, and that's sort of blurred those lines that you're describing between this section and that, or yeah. this topic and that. Now, did you go to journalism school, or how did you get into journalism? You said you went through this crisis at a certain point. I did. Um, this was prior to that. I was I went to college at Berkeley, and I hadn't done any journalism. Um, I did like to write, and I I took a the the test. You know, whatever the G GRE is that the GED G no something GRE GRE. I did awful well at it, and I'd, I'd just heard about Columbia Journalism School, and so I applied, oh. and I got on the waiting list, and I was, true story, uh, Rick, you might know this, I was, in, uh, uh, I, was in, I was in Italy in a youth hostel, not sober, and I wrote a postcard that rhymed that said, Dear Dean of Columbia, essentially, if you don't let me in, I will spend all my tuition on wine. <laughs> End of story. I got home to Boulder, Colorado, where I lived, and uh, this was in late August or early September, and the phone rang. And the guy said, hey, I'm, I, I work for the dean at Columbia. You were near the bottom of the wait list, but your postcard made her laugh. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And uh, I never looked back. Columbia is my daughter's first choice. So you'll have to give me some cool. tips later on. Oh, yeah. I think it should be clear by now. Those are <laughs> Ill, it is ill-advised. Take my clips. Actually, there is another piece of this story. I, my first, when I was in Europe, I was in a in on in Greece, on a basketball court playing pickup basketball with a guy. You would know also, Rick. Rick was a. Good, is a good friend of mine who worked at the Peninsula Times Tribune with me. This is prior to getting hired, prior to getting admitted to Columbia. And he said, I work at a newspaper in Palo Alto. And when I got out of Columbia, it was a recession. And I sent him a, a note or I called him and I said, hey, listen, I don't have a job. 
The next day, the editor called me, a guy named Mark Katchis, and he said, look, we're, it's, we're not really hiring right now, but I heard you're decent at basketball, and we need a guy <laughs> for our intramural softball team, or baseball team, <laughs> softball team, and that's how I got my journalism job. <laughs> that's a pretty good story. So I am prepared to counsel your daughter. So. <laughs> well, it is true. I mean, we, we complain about publishing. Journalism is really in hard times. My next-door neighbor uh, writes for the Chronicle, and, you know, he worries all the time because it's a, it's a tough business. But, I mean, you're there, so, but. Not, you know, not really. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a place. I don't even think it, it, at the times it's necessarily a place you can work the next 20 years. It, the duress is yeah. extraordinary. Um, not, not that people don't want it. 30 million people read the New York Times every month, unique people. But the way our cost structure is set up is not currently built to support, you know, the kind of revenue we bring in that once came through print advertising. Yeah. So we'll see. Hope hope we're yeah. Please. Uh, could you speak a little bit about um, your work with uh, the comic strip you are in? Oh, yeah. How much time do you devote to it? Um, I actually you got started in it. This I really love that. Strip. Well, oh you, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> I there knew it. <laughs> There's someone out there. Um, I. Uh, I mentioned that I was moved by getting swept up in fiction growing up, and I had a, a cherished thing by my bed, and that thing was the Doonesbury collections. And I couldn't, I just couldn't begin to understand how Gary Trudeau did what he did with language. In four panels, he made you think about something, and then had a punchline, and then had a coda, that elaborated on the punchline. And the rhythm, it was like watching Fred Astaire dance. And it was always dry as a cracker. And it just, yeah. And, yeah. and then on top of it, he, so I got interested in it, and sort of about this time in my 20s where I was giving myself permission, I started to look at this idea of doing a strip. You know, why not try anything? And I ran into a, a illustrator, I met an illustrator named Darren Bell, who is off the charts talented. And uh, I guess it was just one of those lucky things. We, we sent it in to, to uh, United Media, and they were big shots. You know, they did uh, Dilbert, and my editor was Charles Schultz's editor and taught me a lot about how he thought about creativity, and we got syndicated. And uh, we got syndicated on September 10th of 2001. Does anybody remember what happened in September of 2001? Yeah. <laughs> And it was a really, um, it, it actually was a very, uh, wound up being a very challenging business environment. We, I did it for 10 years, and I still, my name is still on it under a pen name, Theron Air, but as of about six months ago, Darren took over the writing, temporarily at least, because um, in light of two kids, the marketing demands of this, the day job, I was just finding that I wasn't able to invest in it the way. I, I haven't permanently given it up. I haven't really thought about what I'm going to do. So thank you for asking. I, I really, it's hard to believe any, you, you lose such distance <laughs> from your audience, you forget you have one, so it's nice. That's great. You know, it's funny what you said at uh, Doonesbury, I was. Um, Wait, I can was I say, say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to have dinner with Gary Trudeau about two months ago. 
Oh wow. In New York. Wow. About a three or four hour dinner, and uh, I. When I did my series on distracted driving and then your brain on computers, he did a Sunday strip based on it. And he, uh, I sent a note to his publisher and I said, hey, listen, could I just buy a copy from you? And he sent me the pencil drawing. Oh boy. Of this, and it hangs over my desk and I sent him a note, thank you, I've always been a fan. He said, let me know when you come to New York. And I got to, we spent a four hour dinner. Which that's, was really great. a special uh, experience. I'm sorry for cutting. Well, you no, off. I was just thinking of. I mean, you're you're very honest to talk about the the influence of Doonesbury, and I'm thinking that Doonesbury, if you think about it, is probably one of the most influential comic strips ever done. It changed the shape. If you look at the Sunday comics in the paper now, three or four of them are in that style, that that wavelength. You know, and I'd yes. go further. I mean, I think as a matter of pop culture, you'd be hard-pressed to find. I mean, the guy was, he was the first, I think, non-journalist to win a, uh, the editorial cartooning Pulitzer Prize. He, you know, he, I mean, he just took on these hard questions in an <coughs> environment, in a, in a place. I mean, I think he was very freeing for a lot of people. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's, a, he's modest to a, extreme fault I don't know that he sees it he also oh. writes lying on his stomach which just weirded me out <laughs> <laughs> wow that's incredible that might be the secret for those of us still trying to put it all together get prone might be the thing Grania please yes I, I, I first of all I love paper newspapers you know I wrote a series of stories about um, distracted driving and it uh, they were sort of long narratives um, that I, I learned I drew a lot from the structure I'd learned in fiction um, to make them narratives and they also got into the brain science of what causes us to be so compelled to use our device that we would do so driving 60 miles an hour while uh, changing lanes. Yeah. <laughs> what brought you to zombies? Well, the honest answer is I was talking to my um, agent. I had written ahead of all my contracts, um, which is, is not customary among authors. And um, so I was looking for something to do and she said to me sort of offhandedly, well, what's missing on my list is, and she basically said a character-driven zombie book. And up till that moment, um, I had never thought, and I may have alluded to this earlier, I'm not a person to give an idle challenge to. So I'm like, well, I could do that. And then I did it. I, um, and, and I think I had 40,000 words uh, shortly thereafter. And I'm, I called her up and I'm like, Barbara, you remember you said you needed a blah, 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 blah. And then I sent her the 40,000 words. She's like, oh, shit. Uh, which is often what happens. I, I just wrote a, um, I'll give you a little, I, I was sitting around with my, my two best friends and we go to, they're both writers and we go to lunch together. We call it plot lunch, but it's really gossip and cry lunch. And we do this about every three weeks. And we were at lunch one day and um, Rachel pulls out a copy of People and I had the same People magazine, dirty, you know, secret pleasure. And there was an article about the men who go to Williston, North Dakota to, to drill for oil. Oh yeah. 
Did you see that article? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and since then it's been everywhere. It's on, and I'm sure you know, I mean, the Times is obsessed with it. They keep article after article and, um, you know, everyone's writing about this phenomenon. And so I had to go to Buffalo to sign books. I had to go to a warehouse and sign 5,000 copies of my next book. And I thought to myself, well, on the way back, I'm going to stop in Williston. And um, so I called Barbara up, and I'm like, Barbara, I'm going to write an oil book. And she's like, oh, shit. Cause that, and that's typically how it goes, because you don't, you don't want me for your author. You want an author who does what you say, not what they want to write. So I went to Williston, and I um, immersed. I got into a man camp. It was fantastic. And I, I'm now writing this. Can I ask you a question, Sophie? Yeah. I, I get asked a lot, because um, I, ha I have something that you have, seem to have even mm -hmm. more in spades. I'll just sit down and start writing. Yeah. What is your answer to people? You said you had 40,000 words. How do you avoid the, whether it's either fear or the lack of initial organization, what gives you, what do you do to give yourself permission to just write? Well, it is my, Sue, I don't have a day job. That's what I do. And I don't, I don't, that's not a barrier for me. Like I don't have, um, I mean, I have plenty of voices in my head that are critical, absolutely. And I have to work through those. But the, I, I feel entitled to write my stories. That's not a, that is in itself not a barrier for me. So when I read about the men in Williston, for God's sake, somebody's got to tell their story in a different way than the Times is doing it, and um, you know, Business Week is doing it, and People Magazine is doing it. Someone has to fictionalize it and bring a story arc to it. And well, it might as well be me because no one else is stepping up. So is and that a is that a reflection of? I, I'm being totally sincere with this yeah. question. Is that a reflection of positive self-esteem? I mean, there no, are plenty of people know. who don't have. I mean, there are plenty of people who don't have day jobs who are professional writers or they make their they pay their bills with writing and still get writer's block or some facsimile thereof something very um, smooth happens to you very lubricated if you will when you sit down with how do you how can you articulate that so I teach a class with Julie or by myself called finish that book which is about writer's block which I don't believe in and um, and it's about getting the words done and we've given this talk many 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 times and what I've basically distilled from it over the years is that what stops us from writing is fear I, and I'm committed to this idea I don't I, people have tried to fight me on it but in the end I always win this argument what stops us from getting our words done is fear that we're not good enough that we're not up to the task the thing is I've written 21 novels so the fear's got nothing on me at this point. Now there was a time after my mother died, I wrote very little for six years. The fear won. For six years, the, the fear won, and I would sit down to work every day and I couldn't do it. And, um, and what got me out of it was writing 21 novels, frankly. It's not, it's, it's uh, what's that called, sense memory? That's not quite right. Um, when you, like- Muscle memory? Muscle memory, something like that. When I get to the page every day, I know that the first thousand words is gonna be a bitch. It's gonna be horrible. The, the first thousand is, Mm, excruciating and after that the second thousand is relatively unpleasant but there's lunch involved so you can get through that <laughs> and then like three and four no problem and the the last one is the end of the day and that's tough but it took me 21 novels to get there there was six years when I couldn't write a hundred words a day so now when I talk to aspiring writers and they're I know you a mile away sister you're the one that is working on that same novel and you've rewritten the intro 50 times and you've submitted to 20 contests I know that because I've been there. And the only solution 
to the issue that you are facing is to sit down and it's, I'm going to use, I invoke AA sayings a lot. The only way out is through. You've got to write that book. And, I, and I'm, I'm my own walking advertisement for that. I had to be a really crappy, unmotivated writer before I could become, frankly, a very disciplined writer. I don't, I don't take days off anymore. Sorry. Yes, please. Yeah, I have this theory. Um, when I wrote, I'm not a very good YA author, so don't buy my YA books because I'm still working on it. I'm not <laughs> struggling. But what I have one smart thought about YA. I think that all successful YA addresses one question, one question only, and that is, is there a place for me? And I, I look at my kids and I see them struggling with that in very different ways. I've got one like overperforming and one under, underperforming child, and and I think that your teenage years are a struggle to uh, their identity struggle. And I was a really unhappy teenager. I, you know, it's very geeky. I didn't fit in. I was, I didn't get it. I had no friend. I mean, it was horrible. And I think that that experience of otherness is the same, whether you're, whether you're, I mean, whether you're wearing a badge that says, I am Chinese, so people revile you yet less than the Japanese. I mean, I keep finding this. Every time I research a book, I'm like looking at a new way to be other. You know, if you're an addict, that's really other. If you're an addict's mother, no one wants to be around you. I almost feel like my fiction is an attempt to find that impossible puzzle, someone that no one could love and make them a relatable character. You know, you're Pakistani and you're living in Danville. That's where I come from is Danville. And I would see, so I'd be at Danville. At a, I used to go to these cocktail parties because I kept my um, writing thing on the down low. I was just like a nice housewife. And I'd go to these cocktail parties and I'd be like, oh, I bought a new couch. And then, <laughs> and someone would be like, oh my God, did you hear about the new high school? There's a lot of Asian people there. I'm not sending my kid there because my kid's not going to be a minority. And I kept my mouth shut. I'm ashamed to say that I didn't say anything. But I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I like to think about what it's like to be other. And you can do that anywhere. Like, I went on a tour of Santa Rita Jail because I'm a little weird that way and I thought it was fascinating. There's a, pop, a population of people who are all very other, right? But within them, there's all of us and other. You know what I'm saying? Like any population on earth, you're going to have the outcasts. And I find that fascinating. And that's what I write about. That was a great answer. Really? Mm. Awesome. <laughs> Hopefully I can do it again someday. <laughs> Oh dear, I think I revealed too much. Yeah. Mass look at me funny. <laughs>
Wait, I know the interesting thing is, what do you think our intersection is? I was reading your father's book on Oliver Wendell Holmes. Holy <laughs> <laughs> shit. <laughs> Me too. It was, those sex scenes were awesome. Awesome, right? <laughs> what, were, what were you reading, Sophie? Okay, I'm such a geek. I mean, I told you, and now I'm going to prove it. I was reading Herman Hess. Herman Hess wrote um, a essay that I didn't even begin to understand, but I found a piece of it that I could relate to. I read uh, a lot of the Southern. I read Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers. And I was, I was like, I'm Flannery O'Connor and nobody understands me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. I think I was reading the gamut from Vonnegut to Robert Ludlum to um, the restaurant at the end of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. I probably read 500 times. Really, I mean, literature to fast-paced thrillers to catch 22. But like, but like you said, we were reading. And that's something I despair of. I'm uh, mentoring a girl. She called me up and she needs me for her college credit, independent study. And I said yes hastily, but I'm going to kick her ass because she doesn't read and she wants to be a novelist. Sorry, I don't want to be burned at the stake. Restaurant at the end of the universe, sorry. <laughs> sorry. But, right. but you, yeah. can't, you can't be an author without reading something now and then, which seems to be lost on certain... No, I think that's true. Even, uh, you know, I have a, uh, well, Pat, you know Greg Feely, um, who's a science fiction writer and a critic and a teacher, and he teaches composition. And just talking about trying to teach composition in college, you can teach grammar and structure and everything, but the only way you know how writing is supposed to sound is by reading a lot. You know, it's it's kind of, you have to know that's true, but, but I don't think but I don't think you can actually necessarily easily cross mediums. For instance, I did a little stint where I tried to do a little TV writing, um, where I had a partner who was a great, great writer, and uh, and I just didn't watch that much TV growing up, and mm -hmm. so I couldn't connect as easily. I couldn't make my words work in that medium. So I don't know that writing means writing. I think writing often attends to the medium that you're really connected to. But that's another way of saying familiarity, right? You have to yeah, be experienced totally. in the... Yes. Yeah, you said it very succinctly. I well, I was just talking about the, the sound of English prose, which that doesn't matter in TV writing or movie writing. You just have to be able to do dialogue, you know. But um, to write a novel, it has to... I don't know. There's just a... There's a sound to it. That yeah. That's all I meant. It's... Um, yeah, I couldn't write for... Um, well, t TV's about there's a certain pace. You yeah, know, that's, that's I guess different that's what from I'm the movie getting. pace. Yeah, you know that's different from a novel pace. So, Matt, have you been optioned already for film? Um, I have been in numerous horrible negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only answer you You're will ever hear. Or your agent? I'm my agent. In fact, another one started yesterday. I mean, year long. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They just they, right, they but the very first time they call you, the, the first time I don't know. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. The first time someone calls you and they're like, "Hey, I'm a director and I like your book," you're like, oh, "Really?" Right. And then you run. You tell your kids, "Awesome, you guys go out. We're gonna buy a Ferrari." And then, ten years later, look at this bitter man. Well, all right. So, um, no, no, not not bitter. At this point, bemused. In bemused. fact, I got a I got a note on this one the other day, and I don't even bother now. I don't even bother to send the. Uh, Tell me about yourself. Email. I say no. I'd like, I'd like to introduce you to my agent. Yes. Have a nice day. Right. <laughs> so, but if you did, then you have no interest in contributing to the script. 
Oh, I've never, you know what, honestly, I'm so, I'm truly, gratefully, so beyond, I haven't even, I never even thought about it. I mean, yeah. I'd probably not is the answer, but, yeah. you know, it's a, uh, I mean, it is just, Hollywood is where optimism goes to get impaled. It's just, <laughs> it is just an absolute, just gang rape of optimism. It's just, <laughs> Well, well. <laughs> yeah, sorry, in a good way. <laughs> Not the bad kind of gang rape. What's well, tough stuff? Because I, um, I once got a call, this is so-and-so from Miramax. Um, and here I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They go fishing, I don't know what. It's character building, though. Well, a lot of times, also, you'll get a call from a producer, and he's interested in your thing, and then the, the phone reception gets bad, and then you realize he's on his way home from his job, you know, at, uh, in the mailroom at ICM or somewhere. And, uh, at 7-Eleven. Yeah, because anybody can call themselves a producer. I, I will say this, just uh, like understanding almost the anatomy I don't, I don't, I can't profess to understand the anatomy, but like the, the physiology of the places, there, a project takes so long to happen mm -hmm. that having enough optimism to get it there requires a supernatural level mm -hmm. of optimism right. to begin with. Right. And like, and so it's not that they're lying, it's the amount of optimism <laughs> it literally takes right. to drive it to the next meeting, mm -hmm. whereupon it must be driven to the next mm -hmm. meeting. So, like, it's not, I don't think it's a town of liars. I think it's a culture that requires a supernatural level of belief right. in the impossible. So but, but there, I, I agree with you 100%. And I think that we look in and we go, that is an alien tribe. But most of the world looks at us and sees an alien tribe. Precisely, yeah. yeah. I mean, Right, you're going to do a zombie, yeah, okay, you know, yeah. Well, I look at it, it's like if you, if you want to write a book, you have to sit down and write a book. If you want to do a movie, to me it's like Shackleton going to the South Pole. You've got to get a hundred other yeah. people that want to do the same movie. But right, but right there is a pitfall that I've seen authors fall into, authors who... Um, <coughs> Yeah, you can't be that person. You got to, and this goes for everything from anytime an author diverges from the path, there is the one true path, which is putting the words on the page. And I've seen people like get a little bit too attracted to the idea of getting involved with the, the Hollywood aspect, and suddenly they're not, they don't have a book out for three years because they, yeah. got, they got swayed away. And sure. I think I that mean, can be at, dangerous. At its core, really, this is, that, this is solely a question about money. That's all it is. That's what that conversation is about is can I make more money from the thing that I've already done? And then you, then you go back to, to your point, Sophie, like what is the thing you're, you're trying, you know, if you're putting more, it's too, it's too highfalutin to say, do you want to be a writer or not? I mean, that's too yeah. complicated a thing, but like you're, the thing you can control is putting the words on paper. You were probably going to do it whether or not you were going to get paid or you would have yeah. selected another. Right. Yeah, but you also have this thing where, you know, in a sense, movies are now the queen of the arts, as the novel used to be, as oil painting used to be now. And the other thing is you get paid in dollars instead of rubles. And so you get, you know, you think, well, if I got lucky and this happened, I would get 
four times, you know, so you get sucked into it, you know. One interesting phenomenon that I don't fully understand, these guys, these thriller writers who are less on the science fiction side, like Dennis Lehane and um, go down the list, they've all sort of gone into the script writing. The, the, I have a bunch of friends in the thriller writing business. They aren't among them. I'd be curious to know what was the motivator. Did they get tired of the challenges of writing? Because I, I think they probably get a lot. I mean, you, you couldn't tell David Mamet that TV or Tony Kushner that TV and movies aren't real writing. I mean, you know, right. they could draw circles around me with their spittle. So, right. I mean, you know, so I don't know. Maybe they, maybe at some point it's... I think there's a dangerous intoxication and I think there's genuine creative yeah. excitement. I mean, it depends on the person. And, you, you know, like, who is the guy, Mysteries of Pittsburgh? Uh, Michael Chabon. Yeah. But I don't think that's who I meant. Who's the other guy? <laughs> Not Shabon because he's doing quite well. But there's the guy, uh, American Horror, no, American Psycho. Brett Easton Yes. So I would say he was intoxicated in a bad way, and he really <laughs> lost everything, and including, I mean, he was a brilliant writer, and and, and he But really you couldn't say that for the guys who did The Wire, right? But I mean, the, and that was the example I was going to use. So um, Laura Lippman's husband, who is how I, I can't remember his name, but he went and found a media that he really shines in, and he brought what you said. I mean, brilliant writing to it. Perfect example, because I thought of it. So, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's really true. I, mean, I think it's it can it can go either way, and I mean, I guess that's probably true of everything. Like maybe you and I both take up oil paintings. The next thing you know, I'm like slumped over the bourbon bottle in the gutter, and you're you know showing at the Met. I mean, it's we're we're creative people, so we're attracted to creativity, but not all of it works for us, you know. Or maybe I get to come to Matt and you're, I don't know, whatever. Please. So, Matt, you were asking Sophie about how you give yourself that permission to get the words out. I know that you had a lot of difficulty with your sophomore novel. Yeah. With your what? Second. Second oh. I don't know because the so so I wrote a first one in five months and I wrote this one in probably six months and and uh, the last one probably the one that comes out next year in six months and the second one was was tooth pulling in a in a relative sense that I wanted uh, that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it the fact is I enjoyed putting the words on paper immensely um, they just kept going heading towards a dead end so it wasn't the I was giving myself permission to write and I was enjoying it. I don't have a, the, the truth is, I just don't have enough of a control group, enough of a, of a uh, what's the word I'm looking for, selection set uh, to know whether that's going to recur or not. Um, because I enjoyed, the, I enjoy the raw act of writing, I, I will deal with it when it comes. Um, I think I've probably learned a lot. And I also think there's something, there is no accident that people run into sophomore slumps. You have a you know, if you have good fortune, you, I had very good fortune. I got an amazing publisher and I had a, a pretty good experience, com, you know, commercially. And I think I probably just got a little bit daunted by the thing or some combination of daunted and thinking I probably was better at it than I was and it all conspired against me. So long answer, short answer, I don't really know. But as long as I'm enjoying the act, I'm just gonna keep pushing forth with it and figure past performance is a reasonable predictor of future performance. <laughs>
<laughs> Rhea. Will they all be about BDSM? Like some authors, like Howard Carr, who is Alienist, which is a fabulous book. Yeah. And everything else he's written has pretty much sucked. I mean, like, big time. And now he's trying to do science fiction and fantasy, kind of making his way back into the field, and hopefully we'll have a second chance. But I remember, like, reading about both of you when your first book came out. And there was a sense, literally, really for both of you, that a See, I was writing my 13th novel or something by the time I had that experience, so it really wasn't, I think about, the person I always think about, God bless him, and I'm, I love his first book is Joe Hill. That man struggled so badly with his second book. I think it just about killed him, and I think it was everything you said. Like What was his second called? Horns. Okay. Pardon me? It was I, I, It was a very good novel. It wasn't heart-shaped box to me. And I'm just one reader. I mean, obviously we disagree on this one, but but the but the point is, it just about killed the poor thing. And you know, I think that I was really lucky. You know, I sold my first book for I think thirty-five hundred dollars. So I had no illusions of my own. It's not like I was going to Disneyland on it. You know what I mean? So I it wasn't like I had. I think it would be really. And actually, I have a acquaintance, someone I don't actually care for very much, who hit it huge, the, on her first book, um, well over six figures. Who's that? I'm not saying. I didn't think you would. And she is really struggling because she, she called me up and she's like, they're not sending me to BEA. And I'm like, fuck you, sister. I've never been sent to BEA. You know, um, <laughs> but I didn't say that. You can't mention her name because we might actually have either had her here or. Oh, no, no. She's. I don't think you'd know her, but it's just, I mean, I, I feel for her, but wow, early success can be, now I'm going to, now we'll ask the person who had early success because it sure isn't me, but I, I think it can I, be hard. I heard, a, I heard a, a great thing from my first publisher. He's, he was a, he's a wonder king. He, his name is John Carp, and he had published Seabiscuit and The Orchid Thief, and I mean, he's just one of, he's one of the best there is, particularly on nonfiction. He'd never had a particular... Um, early fiction success, although I think he did David Liss and some others, but in any event, um, he said, after I finished Hooked, I began writing a second book pretty quickly, and he said, uh-uh, and I go, I go, tell me, he goes, I hope you poured every interesting thing you have to say into the, about the world into this book, because if not, I want some of my money back. If you have something left interesting to say, then I want it in this book. There was a larger point, and I think it goes to that first book success. Let's set aside the really weird commercial, who knows, some things hit, from the really heartfelt good first novels. I think those really good heartfelt ones, I don't believe that everyone, I don't believe the adage everyone has only one novel and it's their story. But I do believe that there's a lot built into that first novel emotionally. A lot of stuff that we're all 
either working through or that we've wanted to say. And so that's a lot coming out of the chute. It's pretty hard to reproduce that temper tantrum. And what he, <laughs> what Carp told me was, go live some more life before you, you need more life's experience because I want every bit of your life's experience in this novel. I thought it was great advice. I've thought about it a lot. It means you need to change the camera lens or do something else. I mean, I, I think what I'm describing here starts to get towards literature, but well, I actually think these distinctions are pretty modest. And I think the good thrillers, the good, you know, they, they're, not, they're not Mark Twain, but they are imbued with the kind of emotion and nuance that, that informs emotion that literature has. It's pretty hard to do that a second time right off the bat. I don't, you know, I remember Caleb Carves, The Alienist, and now that you bring it up, I remember kind of thinking the next one was okay and then getting off the... Yeah, I think there actually was a two sequel to that book. I don't yeah. So when you think about it the way John described it, and when you think about, at least I had a wellspring of emotion that led to that first one, you know, it's pretty hard to reproduce that. It obviously can be done. There are great writers who do it all the time. But you have to figure out how to rechannel things, and does that make sense, Rhea? Yeah. Makes well, a lot of sense to me. Because you know, you have Margaret Mitchell, who wrote basically one book, yeah. and she got so wrapped up in the success of it, she never had time, literally, because not even enough hours in the day because of the flood of interest with that novel. Or you think of Capote, yeah. that most people just know in cold, cold blood. blood. Yeah. There's contemporary examples too. Let uh, Dennis Lehane, when he, you know, he started his own publishing um, imprint. I forget who. I'm totally spacing who is it, it's with. But he, for his first book out of the gate, he chose um, a woman who wrote, um, why can't I think of her name? This is going to be a meaningless anecdote. Anyway, she was nominated for the Edgar the same year I was, which is why I remember her. And she had written that brilliant first book, Six Figures, Screenwriter, I mean, everything. Like, her, she was set, right? And then she couldn't deliver. And I think she ended up having to pay her advance back, which is, I mean, you don't want to be doing that. Unless De Dennis Lehane then plucks. Oh, she's great, by the way. She's really fantastic and brilliant. No, no, it was um, somebody who, when I'm leaving, when I'm getting on BART, I'll be like, oh, yes, it was then. I'll be on calling, y'all. But, but I think that was really tough for her. She, wow, it just ate at her because she had so many expectations on the first one. Even Audrey Nissenegger with that yeah. huge millions of dollars yeah. advance, I remember seeing that and thinking, you know, Michael Kwan was never going to see an advance like that. No. Yeah. You, you know, I went to um, I went to um, BoucherCon, which is the big mystery writing convention. I've I've gone for years, and I, I went the year James Salas was speaking. And if you don't know him, he's the guy that wrote Drive. He is fucking brilliant. Um, but he got up there and he goes, "I've never won an award." I was like, "Holy shit!" I mean, this guy can out he can write circles around me. I'm not gonna say anybody. I mean, he never won an award. And so you cannot come into this. You can't expect money or accolades. <laughs> it's it's or funny you meant the. Yeah. But I can really relate to what you're saying because it's like I think what Carp was saying, this first novel it kind of overflowed the cup. It was like um, it was maybe it wasn't even totally perf professional, but it had all this kind of stuff. And now you're just going to give me the cup. 
you know, and I'd rather, you know, I, I think that's kind of cool. That's a cool But let me be the say. devil's advocate and say, what if he had to pay the bills? I mean, that's, okay, I am, I'm just going to put this out there, too, because, like, you know what? We're expected to love our job. Great. We love our job. But um, we're also kind of expected to, I mean, now I'm getting testy, but we're expected to have sort of this magical realism attitude about our job. We still have to pay the PG&E bill just like everybody else. So I think that was... I kind of get what you're saying. That's actually quite beautiful. But if it was me, I'd be like, well, you still have to pay me because I still have to pay dry cleaning bills. You know, it, so I think we walk this really weird line between having to be creative and ethereal. But at the same time, we still uh, have you ever been approached and asked to give your books away to organizations or, or to give your time away? That's happened to me a number of times. And I finally started telling people, you know. I'm doing the job here because I yeah, think somebody's got to stand I, up and. I agree with you. I don't think you're going getting. Cl if this is you, testy, then uh, <laughs> I need you to talk to my wife. <laughs> that's the kind of testy I can deal with. But but I think I was more responding to the idea of great first novel, and then a drop off. I yeah. mean, it, there there are so many. There's such a continuum. Can I just say one thing that, that pops into my head about the, the tremendous value that the internet has provided in spite of all of the terrible, I think it's done one beautiful thing for creativity, which is that I think it has given us permission to try out a lot of different mm -hmm. things and recognize, it's, you know, there's a way in which the devaluation of language and the story has been of great benefit to the um, removal of the filter that a lot of us carry with us. I mean, sometimes I hear what my kids say and I go, you know, somewhere there's some publisher that would, if I wrote that down, would say that's the greatest poetry that ever existed <laughs> and because it's filterless expression of emotion. And I, there's one interesting thing that's happening now, which is just we're getting a lot of words out there and I think some of them are gonna be by people who think that there actually is no one listening to them. Oh, which yeah. might, in fact, create some really extraordinary storytelling. So You're, I think you've come back full circle, though. Like you, now we've got Sylvia Plath sitting in a, you know, Hojo's. I'm sure I messed that up somewhere. But you know, like but that, it's a purity that comes back again because we, you know, when you give everyone a voice, then no one has a voice again. Just like when we all are writing in our freshman dorm rooms, thinking that no one will ever read what we write. Yeah. All right, we have like a couple more questions. Rena's got a. Yes, Dave. Okay. I, my thoughts are kind of distilling because of what you've said there. Um, I've come around in my own writing to sort of a point of epiphany where I'm feeling like I didn't make enough of the personal investment. In some of my earlier work, I was working with the form, which is one way you can turn out book after book after book, but there's a something special that happens when you do the personal thing. I've noticed that it's almost like um, like literature is a genre, but it's a genre called self-expression. And if you buy in completely to that genre and write that kind of book, you'll end up with a brilliant first novel because they're putting all themselves into it, and then they can't do a second yeah. book because they've already told their story. It's all of that self-expression and so to me, what needs to happen is the balance where you put a lot of yourself into something, but you're still allowing yourself to find a form 
that works so that you can come back again four months later, a year later, and tell that story again, but because the form is there to guide you, it all works, the creativity is there, you get the next book out and the next book out and the next book out. So um, sometimes it's tough to know which produces the better book, the, the all in or the just following the form, the formula each time. Um, and I think what I'm getting from both of you is you found a way to find that balance for me. I don't know whether you have anything more to say, but that's that's kind of what I was can, getting. Can I take this? I think you. about this a lot. I, I yeah. think it's really, I totally get how much you think about this, and I appreciate what you're, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, I, I want to, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can pour yourself into it and create a format. I'll tell you in brief how I've tried to do it. I mean, only the reader can decide, but I call these stage of life thrillers. And I think that it, this character is going through different stages of life in each of the experiences that he has. And as a result, I'm able to pour the version of that character fully into that moment in time that that character lives. I've just finished reading, I, I have been unable to read, there's a, there's a woman who wrote a great first, an unstoppable first book. I could, her second one I thought maybe sophomore slump. Now I realize that what she's done, and I, I can't claim I've done any better, but what she's done that I would love to avoid is she has not been able to evolve her character so that it is, in effect, the same person she keeps trying to pour herself desperately into. I think it is possible, without being hackneyed, to change the stage of life or frame or perspective that your character or another character is experiencing. Does that make any sense, or? Yeah, no, that, that, that was that's a at least my, my solution to it. Yeah, I mean, I think there are authors, I'm thinking of one, but I can't remember her name, who, are working something out and you can tell because they're writing the same book you know and and some with great com commercial success because I mean I mean and this is a fact readers like to have their expectations met so there are some of our some of our very valued authors are really writing like Susan Elizabeth Phillips I love her but I know exactly what I'm getting and sometimes I'm just in the mood for that but it's the same book she wrote last year and the year before yeah and it, you're, you're going wide which to my mind subject matter to be your view to say well I haven't dealt with Japanese internment before and you can you can invest in it but it doesn't mean your books are different Dave can I ask you a question what's sure. your, when you look back and say you didn't invest personally are you doing something differently now uh, yeah yeah um, I felt that it was my job to writing to that expectation and now I feel like well no no I, I'm going to write to, to my expectation knowing that a reader would appreciate that so there's a it, it, it's a subtle difference I'm mm -hmm. trying to distill out the right words to describe it you did it just right that's exactly it yeah but it, it's it's like the difference between what Paul McCartney did versus what John Lennon did 
John Lennon could get so navel gazing because <laughs> some of his stuff was like Life of the Lions and Yoko Ono stuff, right? And it was just like you couldn't appreciate it. But the Paul McCartney stuff was so archetypal and everyman that you didn't feel the person there. It was like anybody could be singing that song. Yeah. So trying hmm. to get a little more John Lennon-ish. Does it feel like a does it feel like a does it feel like you're you're taking a leap of you're asking the uh, how how much trust do you have that the reader will go along with you? Uh, at this point, I don't need the money anymore, so I'm just doing it for me. Oh, then you're gonna write some great shit, man. <laughs> as nope. as John Lennon would have said. <laughs> I think. Um, Rena. Actually, the, your first example is perfect because do you remember what happened when she wrote What Came Before He Shot Her? Do you remember I that? Shot him? That See? I don't want to know about any of that. I want to go back to you. Exactly. Know, exactly. And there's no. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm secretly Barbara they're, Havers. They're, they're hugely successful. You've got, it's like this, this character that's in the middle and all these things happen around them, but they themselves intrinsically are. Yeah, I mean, and there you've got a real, I mean, this is a really big problem because Elizabeth George is entitled to take a risk now and then except she's not I mean we've made of her <laughs> I mean we we are like yo Elizabeth here's a stack of money give us another book and it better be just like the last one and she stepped out and I don't even know what she had to do to get her publishers I'm shocked that they let her do that and look what happened she got death threats <laughs> no she did she had people calling her up and they're like I'm gonna get you bitch because they she stepped but that's not what they were upset about. They were not upset about that. They were upset that she wandered from the path and that she didn't give the same book that she gave every other time. Because if you look at her body of work, which I love, it's the same book. Well, I mean, I'll still read every new one that comes out, but I still, like even like Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers, I love Dorothy Sayers, I reread the whole thing every year, but you see changes in those characters. Yeah. Rena, can I make a distinction that I probably should have that I probably glossed over, which is between character and emotion? I think you, I'm, I'm the same character that I've been for forty some years, but I have had different periods within that that are very different emotional arcs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the plot arc and emotional arc are not all that different for me. The maybe the greatest novel ever written is Catcher in the Rye, and the thing that just blows my mind about that is the character changes from the first page to the last and you can never point to the moment that it happened. You just know that he went crazy. And so it's possible to have a character that is, that is the same character book to book to book that is traveling a different emotional arc, that is experiencing growth. I just don't think, I think character, so I, I, I will blame myself. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, no, no. I'm just saying, if I if I conflated those things, I think I might have, in my own description, character and emotion, I actually think they're two incredibly different things. 
you can have the same character go through huge growth. Uh, in the books you're describing, I don't know, Elizabeth, is she, does, does the character not, I mean, what's the emotional range well, and arc? Of the, there, as you can imagine, happens to his daughter, too, as well. But yeah. what, about the, what about the emotional experience He's for the character? He's pretty constant. That's an interesting yeah. point. That I've, I actually haven't heard someone say that before, but it's true. He's constant. His circumstances change. His nature does not. And, I and imagine him being happy, like, let's go out to a movie. Well, it would wreck it. It would wreck it. You'd be like, what? Lindley happy? No, I mean, I think there are people, and I think this actually goes to our writer temperament. Like, there are people who can write many books in a series. Grafton, you mentioned. But there, I mean, we could come up with half a dozen or a million examples. But I found for, I just wrote book five, I'm pretty much done. You know, like, I think those there are also those people who, I mean, we've said what we had to say. We worked out what we need to work out. And for those people, maybe they write a standalone or maybe they, you know, go to something different. And you see a lot of people doing it. I mean, if you think, like, Lehane wrote those, those are my favorite books, was his series. And then he started, you know, but God bless him. He, nobody should, unless they want to pay the bills, be forced to keep writing something that they're done with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's actually, I just had three authors jump into my mind, um, all women authors, all who write dark, which is really unusual, um, but these three women have all gone very um, very wide from what they started with. One's Megan Abbott, who started with a, the, the true 40s noir, and look at me, she's had Dare Me come out. It was astonishingly different. And that's an Edgar nominee, wasn't it? it well, she's won two Edgars, and I don't know if Dare Me was nominated. I don't think it was, interestingly enough. Hmm. Something is wrong in the Academy. And then one was um, Gillian Flynn, because everybody's read Gone Girl, but she wrote two books before that that were similar but very different in, in setting and character and everything else. And the other is Sarah Gran, who wrote, do you know Sarah Gran? Uh, Sarah is a, a disenchantment author. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sarah Gran. But I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of blank faces, I won't spend time on it, but but they wrote really different things. And, and some met with, I mean, Gillian Flynn, obviously New York Times bestseller, like all summer. Sarah Gran wrote, arguably a better book and, and hardly anybody read it, but each of them stepped aside from what they started from and didn't, I'm, none of them are, I'd be shocked if any of them ever write series. I'd be shocked. Nothing, just different, you know, just different. I love what you, you know, it's a great thing when, you know, the latest book in one of your favorite series comes out and you go to your independent local bookstore and buy it. Oh yeah, that's right, that's perfect. That was perfect. We were supposed to say that. And all of our books are available at your local independent bookstore. <laughs> you guys need to sign some books. Listen, this is, uh, this is what I like to do, talking about literature. This has been a great discussion. Both of these guys are, um, this is cool. Yeah. Thank you. All right.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. 